Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Lunch with Legs. Legs Malone here, wishing you a wonderful day and a gorgeous almost weekend for those who will be tuning in on, say, a Thursday or a Friday. I hope everyone's doing well. I cannot believe that August is around the corner. Where the hell did July go? That's what I want to know. Well, I'm very pleased to be bringing this episode to you guys today. I interviewed my dear, dear friend, Miss Runaround Sue. She is the founder and director of Sugar Shack Burlesque, which is a burlesque business company outpost source of inspiration for many of us uh, that has been going on here in New York City for the last, wow, eight years. Amazing. Started in 2006. And uh, as you will hear in the interview, Sue is now in her graduate uh, program at NYU for social work. And uh, I'm not going to say anything more because the interview will speak for itself. But she's easily one of the most interesting people I know. And there is never a dull moment with her. Believe you me. Thanks so much for all you guys who are tuning in. It's such a pleasure to see our subscriber numbers climbing slowly but surely. It's just really such a treat to know that you guys are tuning in and listening to this labor of love. And uh, as always, a huge shout out to my fabulous producer, Mr. David Lawrence Bird, for making it happen on the technical end, because I could not do this without him. So thank you, Dave. All right, guys. Well, I uh, do want to invite you guys to come support the Lunch with Legs podcast by visiting our website, lunchwithlegs.com, and there is a little PayPal button in the upper right-hand part of the screen. Please give what you can. Any and all donations are so, so, so welcome. And if you can't afford to pay, I know what that's like. By all means, please share the podcast with those you love on Facebook, on Twitter, on Tumblr, on Pinterest, on whatever other form of social media you enjoy using because good vibes and energy expands and extends far beyond just dollar dollar bills. So any and all support is most welcome, but by all means, money definitely helps. (laughs) All right, guys, go ahead, pull up a chair, get nice and comfortable, pour yourself a cup of something good, and get ready for the one, the only, Miss Runaround Sue. Runaround Sue, welcome to the Lunchless Legs podcast. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> my pleasure. My <laughs> pleasure. How are you? I'm doing great. Are you enjoying our summer that we're having, this hot, hot summer? I am. I am. This is my official summer of self-care, so it's been very um, indulgent. It sounds like <laughs> you are treating yourself right. Oh, yeah. I definitely. have to say, pardon the uh, noise pollution, uh, Helen has decided to remodel <laughs> the bookshelf. Yeah, I like um, now, you are currently in graduate school for social work. I am. I um, am. Hence, you're amazing. I mean, you don't technically have a summer off. You are in summer school, if I remember correctly. Yeah, that's true. Um, but how, how is graduate school going? I love being in school. I love it. My professor from the class I just finished was asking me if I was taking the second session for the summer, and I told her I was, and she was like, oh, you poor thing, you don't get a break. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, if I have to choose between picking up another bar shift or picking up another class, I would much rather be in class. I love being in school. I love it. Um, 
and I have one year left. And then, wow, yeah. My God, is it a three-year program? It's two, but I went part-time my first year. That's right. And so it becomes three. But I mean, there was a while where I was trying to think of like, how can I extend it and just be in school all the time? It's like you're in a nerf zone or something. You know, nothing can really go wrong when you're in school. You've got mm-hmm. people whose whole job it is to help you graduate. You know, there's a resource uh, for every single issue you might have. If you're stressed about tests in the morning, there's someone you can talk to about it. (laughs) You know what I mean? And um, everyone's like, everyone supports you. Even outside of school, the guys at my deli, they won't charge me for coffee. You know, if it's like exam week or something, they're like, you just go study. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Yeah. School like brings out this sort of like. Everybody wants you to, like, is your champion. You know what I mean? Well, yeah. I mean, learning is, you know, the hallmark of a good society, I feel. Oh, yeah. You that's know? I mean, it's so, it's so respectful, respectable and respectful mm-hmm. um, in saying, like, I now choose to learn on a focused topic, and I'm going to dedicate myself to it. I right. mean, I think, I, I, I think it's one of the most noble things anyone can do, especially in the field that you're doing in, which is social work. Social work is really interesting. You know, a lot of... Social work, you know, in some ways, social work, in many ways, actually, social work reminds me of burlesque. Mm. But insofar as, like, the formulation, if that's a word, formation of the industry and um, the sort of, like, self-definition and, like, mission to communicate the breadth and depth of all the benefits of it, it Mm. reminds me a lot of burlesque. Because, Mm. you know, burlesque, people started doing it, and then people started talking about it, right? And then people started talking about, like, and then, it, you know, the potential for all these great expressions and, like, conversations, you know, were present and whatever. And social work is kind of the same way. Like, people started doing social work, and they were doing all these great things. And then people who weren't in social work were like, oh, are you a legitimate industry? And then all of a sudden, social workers had to be like, oh, let's stop doing everything we've been doing for 200 years and try to make some sort of doctrine that people will, you know, see, and, be, and in that way will be legitimate. Um, so social work school is interesting because there's some classes I feel that are just um, are just an attempt to like legitimize it to be like oh well we teach this class so we must be a real science you know but anyway I'm getting I'm rambling a little bit social work is really interesting because it, you can do so many different things you can become mm-hmm. a therapist which is probably what I'm going to do one on one and then within therapy there's so many modalities art. Um, gestalt, cognitive behavioral, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. Um, you can also go into advocacy. Mm. So you could, you know, be lobbying in Washington for laws, or you could become a community organizer, which I think a lot of producers would be really great organizers. Yeah. You find something you're passionate with, you look at the community, you look at their strengths, you organize them in a way to affect positive change, you know, and it's really about building relationships. Which I mean, you're an extraordinary organizer, I have to say. Oh, thank I mean, you. Having worked with you as long as I did, like, you are you are just hardwired to like gather the troops together and create really cool stuff. Thank you. I mean, that just, to me, that seems to be like an intrinsic part of who you are. I appreciate that. I do believe that I have good leadership skills. Um, and I think it's almost, um, oxymoronic cause I lead almost with chaos. Agreed. <laughs> which, Agreed. <laughs> which I think is one of the things that makes me, <laughs> Which is going to be great for my social work career because you don't walk into an environment that needs social work and have it be organized for you and have it be, like, comfortable. When you walk into a situation and most of them that – most of 
any dynamic of life can use social work. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, people are usually in some sort of crisis or they're of like disenfranchised in some way or they're misunderstood or there's like a legacy of, of this sort of inequality or, or lack of care. And so you're in the midst of all these things, just trying to get things to rise, you know? Yeah. And, um, <clears throat> I think that really responds well to my leadership style because I'm just kind of like, okay, no, we're going to work with everything we have right here, right yeah. now. <laughs> true. We're going to feel good. And in this moment, we're going to do a good show in this room. We're going to like make everything right now feel good. And in that way, ev- the show is going to, you know, rock. Um, but yeah, so I think performers, producers would really, really should consider becoming community organizers. I don't think we have enough of it. I had a really great teacher last year and she kept saying, if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. Mm. You just have to pick one thing, she would say. I don't even have to care if it's important. She's like, you, every person should have one thing that they're willing to put attention and time into. And just, you know, in whatever small way you're capable of doing it or in whatever big way you're willing to do it, just doing something. Whether it's like going to the White House's website and seeing a list of current petitions and signing the ones that matter to you. Mm-hmm. You know, there are mm-hmm. so many ways. I think people think that it, before they get involved in something, they have to make sure they have a lot of time or a lot of knowledge or something. I'm sure a lot of lists of excuses come up yeah. around that. But I think it, it, it's so easy to, to, to make some sort of impact. Um, and then social workers also can do a lot with research. There's mm-hmm. a lot, especially now with, with the way that our society works and the way we give... Um, respect to things. There needs to be a fair amount of documentation done in a particular way. Um, And it's also really interesting. There's stuff happening. The interconnectedness of everything Mm. is becoming esteemed by the Westerners. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, There's this really interesting book. It came out in the 70s, but I think it's still relevant. It's called The the Tao of Physics. Mm. And it's about a parallel and an application of Eastern mysticism and Western physics. And I think that in all social sciences now, we're starting to see that sort of trend in thinking. Um, Yahoo! Yeah, case in point, neurobiology. Neurobiology and neuroplasticity, like, I don't think... There were probably fringe people 20, 30 years ago talking about it, or maybe it was like the beloved theory of some esteemed philosopher. But now, like, there are actual interventions and, like... It's called evidence-based practices when they've been, like, documented and researched in this sort of industry-approved way. Um, So now there are these evidence-based practices about how you can use neurobiology to affect change in a person's decision-making or sense of self or sense of resiliency. Mm. Um, Yeah. Um, And so that's really exciting, you know? So social, I think some people think social workers are like these sort of like matronly women who like do the grunt work of this really like dingy government mission. Yeah. And I think that social workers are actually the people. (laughs) You know what I mean? And they're everywhere. They're in the school system. They're in the hospitals. They're um, out on the streets, which we call being in the field, you Mm -hmm. know. Um, Yeah. They're in Washington. It's really wild. And I think it would make a really good <laughs> tangential, I know, but I think it would make a really, really good historical uh, drama on television, mm. like a, a sort of like a Boardwalk Empire, yeah. but set it in Chicago at the turn of the century, which is where Roosevelt and his wife met. Mm. At the turn of the century, the, the women who would eventually 
put the nuts and bolts of what would become social work. They were these like high society women. There were like two camps. There was like the religious camp and then there were these women. And they were like these high society women who at the time, the only choices in life that they had were to get married or to be like a spinster. Mm. You know, they going to college and getting a degree and having a career, being a single woman who lived about, about town, those were not on the spectrum for them. And so to gain their freedom without getting married... They uh, set up this program where they would go and live amongst the disenfranchised. Wow. So they would set up these settlement houses. And Chicago was one of the places where this uh, Hull House was the name of one of the first houses. Oh, yeah. And um, it was one of the first models. And so these high society women would go live in these settlement houses with people um, who were low income. And, like, part of it is sort of, you know, people might say that it's like a, a microaggression. It's sort of like... Um, white privilege in a way because you know that here are these like affluent, like the voluntourism yeah like these affluent white women being like i'm gonna live amongst you and you just follow my example and you will become a better citizen Got but it. that's sort of that's a very superficial understanding of what these women were doing you know they were going into the field living amongst people in order to really understand who they were because one of the tenets of social work is that you meet the client where they're at no one's an authority on the situation more than the client is mm. and that it's the client's values and sense of virtue and I mean it like in the Aristotle way of virtue where a thing is most virtuous when it is itself it's not about morality or piety right. and so they lived amongst these people and they saw what was important to them and where there were injustices and where the government was failing them and they started working to begin programs you know that wow. would change that so I think it'd be a really interesting television show set in, like, you know, the turn of the century where you'd have these high society women, you'd have all these, like, this political social drama, and then you'd also have the class tension. Absolutely. I think it'd be really interesting. Do you know, I mean, this is so fascinating, I, I I'm, was unaware of this whole backstory, um, are you aware of, in, like, what their reception was like what the some of the social like how did the women's husbands react for instance the high society women oh these like, were unmarried women so these were women oh. who did not want to have to get married and so they sort of found a loophole like if they were doing volunteer work then it was respectable and if Got they it. weren't they weren't living in their Dedicating parents home her life is kind of like a modern nun yes yeah exactly so then the choices were get married and live in your husband's home or stay and live in your parents home and they found this way to go live in the world and do work wow. that was independent and like directed and important without like upsetting the social class that for their for them for all intents and purposes was really important you mm. know and until they were ready to fight it or maybe at the same time they did i don't really know the details of that but wow um, yeah. Are you listening, HBO? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I think it'd be really interesting. Absolutely. I mean, now more than ever, I feel like that. You know, people. I would hope that an idea like that would be appealing. Um, I mean, just you know, thinking of like an all-women cast because it's so. There's so much. Anyway, that's yeah. a total like other segue. But it's just how like. <laughs> and we have one in New York, the Henry Street Settlement. Yes. It's still in operation. And they do all That's kinds amazing. of really good work. You know, they go into the schools and they do counseling and they provide prevention counseling and all wow. kinds of... So, like, dialing back, I realized, like, we haven't... I, I, I mean, I will have said this in the introduction that I have yet <laughs> to record. Um, but you... I mean, your path has been so fascinating, which is one of the reasons why I asked you to be sitting here on my couch with me because you your life has been so fascinating. And, I mean... The next question that comes to mind is, what led you to 
going to graduate school for social work because you, um, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll let I'll let you tell the story, but I mean, you are coming from you know a very like cemented place in the New York City burlesque scene. Ah, <laughs> oh, thanks. Well, let's see. How far shall we go back? Tell me the story <laughs> of Runaround Sue from the very beginning. <laughs> well, you know, back at the very end of the 90s, the 1990s, <laughs> I moved to New York with this idea that I just wanted to live the greatest adventure possible. That was like the actual intention I gave myself when I moved. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And my brother, who was a Marine at the time, drove me up and my... A uh, friend from Virginia had gotten us an apartment in Long Island City. And I just didn't really have the right sense of ambition to be in the theater. And my undergraduate degree was in theater. And, you know, we did a play in the Fringe. Um, mm. And, you know, I did a couple films here and there. You know, it was uh, definitely something I was invested in. But I just didn't have the right sense of ambition. And I really liked being in control. <laughs> Which is one of the wonderful foundations of burlesque. The amount of control the performer has. Um, so I started sort of looking for other things, and, uh, you know, life moved forward, and I got engaged, and my ex-fiance, <laughs> see where this Spoiler is going? Spoiler <laughs> alert! <laughs> <laughs> uh, my ex-fiance and I would go to these burlesque shows. Um, most uh, specifically, we went to see Starshine mm -hmm. at the Old Rafifi, and we went to Collective Unconscious, uh, where there, it wasn't Pinch, it might have been Pinch Pond, but I don't think it was. Anyway, so we went to see a handful of shows. Um, I remember one of my very first shows, I, my dad was in town, and my ex-fiancé's mother, and the four of us went to the Collective Unconscious to see this show, and one of the acts was Tigger doing his priest act. Oh, my God. <laughs> and my father is very religious. Like, he's not religious intellectually. He's religious emotionally, mm. not like um, in a... Uh, demonstrative way, but he cries when he thinks of Christ. Wow. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. He would, he doesn't believe it's his place to tell other people how to believe, but insofar as how he feels about his faith, it like moves him. Mm. Luckily, we're not Catholic. So at least, <laughs> <laughs> at least Thank that. God for that in that specific context. Oh but God. I remember I looked over at my dad and he simply bowed his head. <gasps> That's all he did. He didn't like he didn't like, he wasn't a jerk. He didn't make any faces. He didn't like make anybody uncomfortable. He didn't have anything, you know, he needed to declare. He just bowed his head and he let the moment pass. And then when the next act came on and he felt comfortable, he watched it. Wow. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so then my ex fiance and I broke up for reasons that had nothing to do with burlesque. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to become a burlesque dancer. I'm going to do this. And, um, I had always experienced at shows what I call a riotous act of freedom. Mm -hmm. I think that burlesque, I had the good fortune to be um, the burlesque producer over at the Living Theater for a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, with you, we worked on shows together. I, I was there for like a hot second. You, That was really your tenure there. It was, so, it was amazing. The Living Theater has such a rich history in the national and the international theater scene, and particularly in New York, and sort of like questioning authority and, you know, continuing to like uh, blaze your own path, you know? And, and uh, Judith Molina, who runs that theater, always talks about anarchy mm. and like the power of anarchy. And I think that burlesque is one of the most anarchist art forms in a way that really supports what anarchy is. Mm. You know what I mean? It's very self-governed. 
It's very, um, each person is responsible for themselves, and yet through their own, you know, uh, code of behavior, the whole society seems to take care of itself, you know? Um, so anyway, I, saw, I felt all this freedom. I started to take, I took some classes, like a three-week long class with the Red Hots burlesque who aren't here anymore, but um, the troupe isn't here, but some of the girls are. Um, and then I graduated, I had my first performance at Rafifi's in February of, oh, seven, maybe? No, because I moved back. You were already established at that point. Was it, it was it early 06? Oh, you know what? I was supposed to get married in 05. So it would oh, have been 05. Okay. 05. <laughs> oh, a decade. A nice, almost nearly, wow, nearly yeah, decade Wow, yeah, just ago. about. Wow. Um, yeah, so I did, and of course I did Run Around Sue. Uh, I did that song. Um, and I chose that name because my fa- my father's a sailor, and he's um, he's just like you would imagine a sailor to be. He likes to sing, and he likes to laugh. And uh, I never had an alarm clock when I lived with him. He would sing me awake. And since Ugh. my real name is Susan, he would always pick songs with Sue in it. Aww. And then my upbringing was very much on the road. You know, I moved 18 times by the time I was 18. Fucking hell, <laughs> so intense. And then when I graduated from college... You know, I had gotten a BFA in theater, and I remember thinking that there weren't a lot of plays about a girl who just got out of drama school. So I, I <laughs> swore off performing for a year. I was like, I got offered a play at this theater in Richmond, and I turned it down, and I moved into my friend's car, and she and I drove across the country, like, months at a time. We would go for three months, and then we'd go back to Richmond and wait tables, and then we'd go for three months, and then I would move to D.C., you know, and like, so Run Around Sue just really, really fit. Um... And then, so that happened in February, and by May, I was producing my own show. And producing just really felt, it was really natural, you know, like, especially I think because I can put things together without having everything, all the edges be neat. Yeah, know? and you're, you're a natural-born manager. I mean, you, you. were a manager oh, at the yeah. time. Yeah, I was managing Cafe Habana in Nolita, and you and I would have meetings sometimes. I remember giving you a tarot reading <laughs> in the back of the restaurant. People table were nine. Like, what the fuck is going on? Yeah. <laughs> table nine. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Sean, uh, the gentleman who owns that, had just opened up the Habana Outpost. Right. And so he gave me their courtyard to do some stuff. You you performed. I in remember that. that in the rain. Yes, for Mo's birthday. Yep. Yes. Um, Mo actually just showed me a photograph of me. Mo is this uh, uh, third-generation Sicilian butcher who lives on whose shop is on Elizabeth Street, which is where Cafe Habana is. And we, as you might imagine, struck up quite a friendship. <laughs> we would listen to Frank Sinatra tapes, like sitting in folding chairs outside of his butcher shop, sipping on homemade wine. <laughs> um, and so it was his birthday. <clears throat> And I, I, he just showed me a picture recently. Was it when you were presenting him a birthday cake? <laughs> yes. And, cause, and I had, you know, as you said, we all danced in the rain. So oh I'm like. Oh my God. I can see that picture in my head because I was there when it was taken. I will uh-huh. never forget. I mean, people of the internet who are listening to this, like, go, if you can Google Habana Outpost just to get a sense of what their courtyard looks like. <laughs> now imagine like a big lifted wooden walkway, like catwalk in a circle around the center fountain. We're all doing our thing. Tons of people there. It's raining. Not heavily, but it's raining. Sue does this beautiful dance. And then Topless, I mean, with pasties on, presents a cake to Mo, who I'm pretty sure if he had grinned any bigger, his face would have broken. But I'll just never forget, it was just like the water like all over you. And like 
<laughs> I think your boobs were right at about face level for him with a huge cake. That said, was it his 90th birthday? It would have been his... No, it would have been his 80th. It was 80th. <coughs> <coughs> yeah. Mo's hilarious because Mo... <laughs> I'll never forget that. Mo really wants me to, you know... Mo's a traditional traditional man. He re- really would love for me to get married and have kids and become Catholic. And um, every time I would hang out at his butcher shop, he'd be like, you going to quit that wiggling? When are you going to quit that uh- wiggling? That's what he called it. <laughs> but let me tell you, he was not asking me to quit wiggling anything <laughs> on that particular evening. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, right. no, and that picture, oh, my God. It's a moment in time for sure. So from that experience, I started producing more and started performing more. And, you know, it was at the point where I would be dancing anywhere from five to nine times a week, depending Mm -hmm. if I was overbooked. You know, you know the hustle. Absolutely. You know, producing 270 shows a year in five different cities. Also, you know, we did a show together down in uh, Bermuda. Yep. Right? And, uh... They had that huge poster view all over the island. Yeah, <laughs> it was like just, four feet tall. Oh, my God. <laughs> and they had put me on the cover of the paper. Yes, I remember that. And I remember the night I arrived, um, we went. they took us to this, like, I don't know if you were there the first night. Did you? Yeah, we flew together, or did you join us the second day? Um, I joined you guys the second day. Second morning? Yeah, because you guys were already installed in the room when I got there, I okay. remember. Um, and they took us to this little, like, divey place by the airport you know where you could just get like a burger and a beer and we're sitting there and the guy who picked me up was like that's the editor of the newspaper they put you on the cover and I was like oh okay and I stood up and I went over and I was like excuse me my name's Runaround Sue I'm currently on the cover of your newspaper and I just wanted to thank you so much for your support and I really hope you can come see the show oh my god <laughs> and she just kind of looked at me for a second like uh <laughs> okay, you're welcome. You know, you're welcome. I don't know if they came and saw the show or not, but it was fun. Yeah, and then I also produced shows over in Europe, you know, uh, taught some classes. And I think one of the one beautiful things, if I may be so arrogant to say, uh, about many of the projects I started is they had a life to them. Yeah. So, like, the place that I produced for the first time in London – you know, I, Dan, the manager there, he wanted to continue doing burlesque, specifically a more New York style of yep. burlesque. Um, and so I put him in touch with uh, people who are now, now they're doing... Trixie and Matt. Yeah. Trixie Malicious. That's right. And, and Matt, Matt Frazier. And, uh, and now they're doing their show. They do it every... Sleaze. Sleaze. Every uh, the month. the best. And ironically enough, so when Shaken and Stirred started, as you can remember... From when you joined, we go through formats, different formats from time to time. <clears throat> and sometimes I look back and I'm like, how did that ever work? Specifically, we used to just have two go-go dancers and they would just alternate, right? One would work the door and one would go-go and they'd flip and one would work. The- and oh now God. like... That must have been at the very beginning in 2006 before I was a part of... Yes, it when was... When you and Lady Satan. It was definitely when Lady Satan was there. It was definitely at the old Niagara. And what I can't believe is that we also only had, we had the same exact go-go girls. So we had this one girl, she wasn't, I mean, she dances, but she's not really part of the burlesque community, although she does numbers from time to time. Paloma Negro was her name, her yes. stage name. Because also part of my whole shtick at the Havana Outpost was I would get the waitresses to do a group number. Yep. So a couple of the girls have a little, like, have put their toe in the water. Well, Paloma Negro was our burlesque go-go dancer for that party for the entire first year that we did the party. 
So fast forward like eight years, you know, I go to London, I produce the show, um, and then Sleaze starts up. At the, the same year that Sleaze starts up, serendipitously, Paloma Negra moves to London and opens up a taqueria downstairs from Sleaze. Directly underneath. Like, they are on top, on a, <laughs> in a two-story structure. Yeah. It's a taco place, because I've been there, and like, the, the, <laughs> Oh my god, the synchronicity and the coincidence of that Real, is just right? crazy. Yeah, and I was Matt Fraser stopped by Shake It and Stirred uh, a couple mo- months ago, and I was like, oh, by the way, if you ever find your short a go-go dancer, just go downstairs, find out what the chef is doing. <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> yeah. Um, and you were also—I mean, I have to say—you were also instrumental in the, if I may go so far to say, the unification and sort of tilling of the soil of Richmond burlesque oh, down in Virginia. Oh, thank you very much. I believe that is true. Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> there are, there are many burlesque dancers now established, well established burlesque dancers, and you were their first. You know, like let's do this. I mean, Ooh. I could be making that up, but that was the impression that I had. Yeah, I think you know Richmond is full of a lot of really smart and talented women. And I have no doubt with the um, current national revival that, that, that it would not had on its own become a viable and interesting community. But I do, without a doubt, believe that a conduit was formed mm-hmm. between Richmond and New York and experiences were gained and uh, relationships were created mm-hmm. that enabled the scene to grow faster and in a much more relevant sense nationally because of not only because of my relationship with the city but also just because of the way in which I work Mm -hmm. the way that I'm just like well what do you mean why wouldn't you just call up this producer in New York and say I'm coming next week and can I dance like you know what I mean like I don't I think that the way that I encouraged them was very effective Um, and like I said I think they would have done it on their own but I don't think it would have happened as quickly and I'm really proud of it. Yeah, no, that's a lot to be proud of. I remember because I, I went down there for the first day of auditions. Oh, yeah. I remember when there was this brand new girl named Boo Boo Darling. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. She came with to a big old janitor bucket. Yep, and she did great, and we took her to the Palace of Wonders. Yep. Oh, those were great days. I love producing at the Palace. Oh, yeah. R.I.P. Yeah. That was a wonderful venue. Yeah. That was a wonderful venue. There were really a few years there where it was just rolling. You know what I mean? It'd be like, uh, and, you know, we were working together. We'd do a show in Montauk. We'd do a show in New York. We'd do a show in the Berkshires. And that would be all in one weekend. Yep. (laughs) I remember many early morning departures or at least or something like, you know, zipping out to Montauk and then zipping back (laughs) for another show. Yep. Yep, and you know, like picking up uh, raffle prizes in uh, oh my god in New York, and then selling off the raffle tickets in D.C. Yep, yeah, it was great, great times. It was so much fun, and we, you know, as performers, we really had a lot of control, mm-hmm. more so than performers in other um, fields right now. I think I don't think that you know, and part of it I think is the fact that it's still so small. And part of the fa- is the fact I think that performers are running it, and then part of it is just like, you know, the innate part of what makes burlesque so dynamic and interesting is the uniqueness of each performer. Absolutely. You know, so, and you know, there's always disgruntled, you know, scripts running, you know, throughout every scene at every moment, and you can definitely find people who are going to complain about the the homogeny of a particular style that's popular or like the sort of pack mentality that is prevalent you know 
but I think at the end of the day, I still think there's so much autonomy in burlesque, mm, and it's really, absolutely. really invigorating. But for me, what happened, you know, I was running really hard for a long time, and I was really proud, you know, to be, I think, one of a small percentage of people who were able to live as a yeah. performer and to not only live in New York but to like have a presence like on the entire East Coast I yep. feel like absolutely no absolutely <laughs> you know um, it's really fucking cool that they're are articles in my hometown paper that say you know Susan Gardner returns to Richmond uh, that's pretty amazing yeah you I, I mean in one particular instance I mean there was definitely a fair share of controversy uh, I'm thinking in particular of the Lennox Library incident. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But a lot of positive stuff came out of that. For instance, the owner of the Slipper Room, Mr. James Habacker, now regularly performs as Walt Whitman, and that was—I mean, he created that character for that show. That's right. I was unfortunately not there. I got to hear about everything through the grapevine. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was the oldest library, public library in. America. Really? Uh-huh. The Linux Library. Oh my gosh. And they had wanted to do for their big anniversary, a sort of like a fundraiser of sorts, they wanted to do burlesque. And, you know, we, I think, really made a slash with our show in Great Barrington. Absolutely. Um, and I think there are now some local troops in, oh. up in the Berkshires. I feel like I hear about them from time to time. Mm-hmm. But, you know, this was uh, a woman who had been a fan at our show. And so she wanted to do burlesque. She was on the board or something. And she just asked that all the acts be inspired by literature. And so, you know, we did it and it was exciting and it was fun. But she got fired because people found people who had not even attended. And I think that you'll find that. I think you've said this yourself. Absolutely. That usually the biggest dissenters to burlesque are the people who have never attended a show. Exactly. There's so much fear and judgment in their minds. It's like go to a show, see what it's actually about because what you're fearing doesn't really exist in a show. Mm -hmm. And what I think is so funny, I just watched this episode of Royal Pains, which is this TV show about a doctor in Montauk, Mm -hmm. and they are trying, they are opening up a medical center, but they found out that the neighbor, the next door spot is a gentleman's club, they called it first, and then one of the characters is like complaining to this bartender, and she's like, well, why don't we go check it out? And they go to check it out, and it's actually shot at Dwayne Park, which is funny. Oh, my God. But, um, oh, my God. I was going to be in that. Oh, really? Yeah. And, yeah. I recognized it right away. And what was really interesting, and I think sort of a sign of the times, is the fact that in that scene, he's like, oh, these these women are just like people just like everybody else. And there's nothing, you know, it's exciting, you know, and it's uh, hedonistic a bit, but it's not, uh, you know, it's not killing babies or like something right. that needs to be protested again and yeah. yeah heavy drug use you yeah know? I'm trying to think like the worst possible the worst case scenarios of having a yeah. gen- quote unquote what they think is going to happen door. exactly yeah so unfortunately you know a, a you know many many years ago that show resulted in the firing of this woman and but what was so glaring to me was the fact that how distilled a thing can become from its heart as it ages. And what I mean is, like, there are these people on this board to preserve literature because books and stories are so important and so, like, so much of a cornerstone to understanding who we are as people and individuals. And those very same authors who, in order to create those books, they are the people who probably would have been most, like, 
comfortable amongst the burlesque interpretation of their writing. You know, mm-hmm. like writing is visceral. You know, and and yet the the world of reception of their stories has become so far removed from the world of creation that the very thing that would be at home with them ignites what their literature should ignite but for whatever reason doesn't and so context yeah and so like it's you know it's removed and uh it was unfortunate but she i'm sure is fine i'm sure she's doing great (laughs) yeah i actually booked her many many years later i was working with um the uh inspired word we were doing like we were seeing and we were doing an experiment to see if you if burlesque set to poetry or to words would be you know as, as harmonious a marriage as burlesque to music and i think it it can be but um it didn't i didn't think it really worked but i did have her come down and she did do a piece oh, a burlesque cool. piece actually oh, wow. yeah karen lee yeah yeah i remember yeah so yeah you know i was running really hard and i was you know having this really interesting life but I was, my interests were changing, you know, I was, uh, to be honest, tired of having that stuff on my face every day. <laughs> and also, interesting, I was noticing that um, Runaround Sue was very developed, you know, she had like a, a nice like net of friends and, you know, of influence in her sphere, you know, I could get in touch with the, the people who handle the listings or the press, you know, in many, many different towns mm-hmm. and get press out very, very easily, you know. From the beginning, like, anytime I went anywhere, I would just send a press release. Mm. And you start doing that, and 10 years later, you don't have to send a press release. You can send a personal email, you know what I mean? But um, I don't know. It was, I, I was really losing interest a lot. It wasn't holding my interest. I was still enjoying the backstage atmosphere, and I was still, like, really appreciative of the exploration and the expression and the acceptance that the burlesque community engenders. But it, I was almost so appreciative of it that I knew I had to leave because it was I was resenting all the time I had to spend on it, you know? Uh, I was resenting all the money I was putting into my costumes and I was resenting, like, having to fix it up and, like, you know, if, like, a crystal fell off, like, taking the time to fix everything. And so I just started looking at my skills and, like, what I could do, what, what it was I really loved about burlesque. And that was, like sort of like shaking up the norms or what people thought, shaking up the boxes that people put themselves in in order to make them happier. You know, like there are a lot of different reasons to do burlesque and some people might want, um, might really enjoy sort of the excitement and the, like the titillation, you know, they might really love like getting that force out in the world and, you know, that that is exciting. And there's some people who might really like the shock and awe of it and they might really think that their message is going to be heard the best in this modality. But for me, I really liked, you know, putting a bunch of people who didn't, weren't similar into a space and having them create something that was really positive, mm-hmm. you know? It was really that simple. Um, and I th- recognized... That I, I think that I had of a rapport for de- I think that I have a skill for developing rapport amongst a lot of different kinds of people. Absolutely. And I think that <laughs> uh, my ability to be comfortable in a in a vast vast variety of situations is almost a superpower. <laughs> you know, and so I just started thinking about all these things, and I was like, you know what, I could really just change the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I and just I takes one person. Yeah, I and I could take these skills that are really comfortable in nightlife and bring them into the daylight. I really wanted to make the world that I was able to make so so easily at night. I mm-hmm. wanted to bring it into the daylight, and so that's what made me like start thinking about social work and becoming a social worker. Um, and I remember I wrote my essay to get into NYU about how nightlife is an untapped form for social change, and that people come into nightlife craving distinct experiences, hungry to meet people not like them. Like that is their agenda. And if you can create a forum where that happens without othering someone, so it's not that happens, but you're you're the visitor to this world, and I'm in it, and you get to observe me. And you know, there's like a time and a place, and I'm sure a benefit to that, but. The shows that I was putting together were, weren't about othering at all. It was like, we are Inclusion. together. Inclusion. Yeah. You know what I mean? My, I would say my medium is like the space between people. It's mm. not my costume. It's not my dance moves, you know, even though I am a great dancer. Absolutely. People <laughs> yeah, I so, suck at that emotion. Thank you. So I wrote my essay about, you know, what an untapped form it is. And, um, and I'm always bringing that up in class and stuff like that. And it really just felt like a natural flow, you know, as I, I also started feeling a lot more private, you know, mm-hmm. I started really just meeting myself where I was at, you know, I didn't want to be out till four o'clock in the morning every night, you know, I still do my dance party and I hosted last night and it was a blast. And I think that it's great that those forums exist in the world, but I think there's this, um, there's this economic philosophy, the law of, of sunken returns. I don't know that. And it's just this idea that you stay involved in a scenario because of how much you put into it, even though you're not, you've passed the point where what you're getting out of it is worth what you're putting into it, Mm -hmm. but you still just can't remove yourself. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want that to happen with burlesque, and I felt like it was kind of getting there, you know? And the beautiful, beautiful thing about this community is I know if 20 years from now I wanted to dance, (laughs) I would like call up Jane's at the slipper room and be like, can I come in on Saturday? Yep. You know what I mean? And it would be, like, fine. You totally. Know? Um, but I'm excited for my future as a social worker. I think it's going to be mm-hmm. really interesting. And I think I'm bringing some tools to the trade. That Talk about some fresh, like, energy. Because mm-hmm. I can't think of a single other, like, social worker who's like, oh, by the way, I'm coming from, like, producing shows and, like, <laughs> having to, like, do, like, you know, putting on million-dollar shows with a shoestring budget and, like, this, that being very resourceful. I mean, that level of resourcefulness, which, again, I feel, like, is a very unique attribute to you. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, just moving 18 times before the age of 18, <laughs> you know, I feel like that's going to prime you for, like, you know, but, like, I, w- I almost want to say, like, non-attachment to situations yeah the trans just like rolling with it rolling okay that doesn't work okay what will work yeah you know constantly looking towards the solution um as opposed to getting really like bunged up in like but this is what we have to do it's like no actually how about let's you know like choose something that's completely out of the box i think that's a real asset that you offer thank you i also have come to discover as i moved from a place of chaos to a place of stability and I don't think there's anything wrong with having been in chaos. Mm-hmm. It's not like I was this deficient person. I was just growing up. Yep. And that was that was my like prism to pass through. And it was just as beautiful as a prism as you can imagine. But in that path from one to the other, going to the next place where I felt even better, I realized it's really, really simple. You have to just find a world that you can feel relaxed in. Surround yourself with inspiration 
have the wherewithal to understand what discipline is to you and how to attain it. And if you can do all those things, like, life is going to feel so, so good, you know? And I think that just being able to impart that message either as a therapist or, like, as an after-school counselor for kids or something, like, I think that and the other, like, great piece to the puzzle is resiliency. Mm -hmm. If you can, like, find a way to make yourself resilient. Um, And all those things are things you learn as a performer, you know, Absolutely. staying relaxed on stage when your costume's not working or someone's like... Improving. Yeah. I mean, that talk right? about total loss of control over uh-huh. a situation. It's like, well, I can't control this, so I'm just going to dance with it. Yeah. I'm just going to be relaxed about it. You know, the discipline to rehearse, the discipline to like hunt down those bookings, you know, the inspiration to keep coming up with fresh stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, it all like works. Yeah, totally. What would you... I mean, you have mentioned... Um, you know, once you're done with school in a year or so that you'd like to become uh, a counselor, therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have, I mean, apart from that, is there any like grander plan stuff that you have with regards to social work I mean, and community organizing, for instance? No, not so much with that yet. Um, I have this, I used to have like a very linear sort of way of thinking about things. And now I just kind of like stay in the middle of it. So I do imagine I will probably be doing community organizing at some point. Um, And yes, I do imagine that. But I think that it's I'm still so close to my years as a producer Mm -hmm. that I'm not I don't want to even think about it too much. I see it as a potential and I find that uh, inspiring in the future. And I do think I'm going to tap into it. But I'm also like it's sort of like my process of um, divination. Individuation. 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 You know, I just came from that. So now I'm going to explore more of like this private life, you know, like in this sort of like settled stableness, you know. Like I do know I want to have my own practice. And I do know I want the practice to be coinciding with a tea shop. You know? Yes, you've mentioned <laughs> among your other interests. Also, you have studied apothecary. I have, yeah, and I think that there's a lot, a lot to be said about um, the power of, of medicinal herbs um, and the accessibility, to, mm-hmm. especially in light of what our current healthcare system is like, um, and just the return to the earth, and also the the manifestation of self care. Like when you're using teas to feel better you're taking 20 minutes to make your remedy like just like getting into the mindful practice of caring for yourself Mm -hmm. i think it will transcend your life in in other ways that are going to be really impactful i totally agree um so yeah i do want to have this chess shop and i don't imagine myself running it you know what i mean i think another thing that i really chess tea yeah chess also like a because chess shop. again you are a <laughs> badass chess oh, player i love chess so much <laughs> i do i love it so i just got a new board it's very exciting um but another thing coming back coming from my production days i love providing opportunities for other people so i don't necessarily want want to run this tea shop but i want it to be there i want it to be accessible i want it to be part of the um tone of the whole space that i'm working in and i want to be serving teas to my clients while i'm having therapy with them, you know? Um, yeah, so that that would be, like, the grander, like, what's the next thing? Yeah. I do want to get my doctorate. Awesome. Definitely. Um, in, in what in what field? Clinical social work. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Tulane has a really good program. I think New Orleans would be an interesting place to be doing social uh, work. Yeah, and field work. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, where I did my undergrad, actually, Virginia Commonwealth in mm-hmm. Richmond, they're one of the nation's top um, doctoral programs for social work research. No way! Yeah, and Richmond has a, quite a legacy, you know, of, of social need. <laughs> so I think that would be an interesting place, plus my family's there, you know, it, and I think buying a practice is more feasible there than in Brooklyn, you know? Yes. Yeah. But I don't plan on going back for my doctorate until I've been in the field for a couple of years. Mm. So again, like these are all like things I envision coming to. But um, right now, I'm just enjoying my summer. Absolutely, <laughs> it is your summer summer of self care. Yeah, is that how you put it. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah, I go to you know Reiki every other week. I go to reflexology every other week. I get shiatsu once a week. Oh my I God. try to read a new book every month. I, you know, tried to take myself on field trips. I went to Kabuki last week, um, taking some classes at the Culinary Institute. Amazing. You know, I just, I'm wandering. I make sure I'm wandering a lot, going to the gym, you know, like, just, I just, you know, burlesque is a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And I'm one of those women who always puts, throws herself into relationships also. Um, And so I made a pact with myself that I was going to put into myself the work and attention and resources that I had been putting into burlesque and into my relationships. When I was at the height of my burlesque career, I remember I had to fly home for a birthday party, maybe. It might have been my dad's birthday. And I had a couple of burlesque girls staying with me, actually from Richmond, Deepa DeJour uh, and someone else. And um, they and I remember like I was getting ready for my flight, and I had my bag, and I threw in my toothbrush, and I was like... What else do you take? I was so used to traveling for tour. It's like, I don't need a costume, and I don't need, like, six pairs of shoes, and I don't need wigs, and I don't need stuff to do my hair. And part of it was also because I just wasn't paying paying any attention to my real-life self. Mm -hmm. You know, I also remember only owning, like, stilettos or flip-flops, you know? And I think (laughs) I remembered at one point I owned, like, two dresses that weren't performance dresses, mm-hmm. you know, and three pairs of socks. I remember Julie Atlas Muse in the dressing room at Slipper. She had been, like, throwing out all, like, her stuff and, like, purging. And she was, you know, looking for someone to commiserate with her, you know. And she was like, you know, like, socks. I think I threw out, like, three dozen socks today. I mean, everybody has so many socks, more socks than we need. Like, what about you, Runaround Sue? How many pairs of socks would you say you need? And I had just bought myself socks because I had only been owning flip-flops and stilettos. Mm-hmm. And I looked at her and I said... I have exactly three pairs of socks. <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, oh, I should have given you my socks. Oh, no. <laughs> and at the time, I was like, well, I'm living in my car, so I probably couldn't fit three pairs of socks. <laughs> Although they would make a great ramshackle pillow. Yeah. <laughs> so oh, my God. You know how many, like, men or, like, fans would, like, die to have, like, a pillow of Julie's old socks? Oh, my. Dude, that would be... For a specific like <laughs> group of people, thousands worth, thousands of dollars, I'm sure, mm-hmm. thousands. Everybody yeah. else, not so much. Yeah, but you know, um, wow, this is like, I feel like we've just come almost like full circle, but we haven't. I'm just, I'm really just, I'm, I'm reveling in the narrative of the uh. whole flow of this uh, of the talk. It's amazing. I'm looking at the timestamps. Like, wow. This is incredible. Um, so I guess before we get to the end of the interview, um, if where can people find you? 
Mm. Um, in a burlesque sense, I know you are still doing Shaken and Stirred at the Delancey. Mm-hmm. Um, but apart from that, like, are you writing online? Or, like, do you have... What is what is no, your what is I'm your accessible like, presence if people want to? I think I am at the least accessible stage of my life. <laughs> Ain't nothing wrong you know, with that. I mean, I am certainly not like on some like uh, sheltered sabbatical in the world, but I'm very introverted, you know, and I'm very I'm simplifying my life so much. Um, I would say if people really needed to find me. <laughs> They, there's always Facebook. I mean, you True know, I, I, uh, I'm i not hidden on Facebook. You know, you yeah. can find me. Runaround Sue's on there. Sugar Shack Burlesque still has their website up. So you can always contact me through that. Um, but I would say in general, like, I'm very open to the world and what's coming through it. And I wouldn't say that I am um, a misanthrope at all. No, but course. I am happily circling the wagons on my life at the moment. That's amazing. So yeah. people don't even try to contact her. <laughs> Don't. Maybe write me a letter. Yeah, there you go. Write me a letter. Send it to the Delancey. <laughs> the Delancey is located at 168 Delancey Street. I have no idea what the zip code is, but if you go to usps.com, they have a very easy zip code finder. Yeah, that's it's so that's, interesting that's, to see if you get some. We were just talking about how you wanted some mail. I love mail. I love mail. I love mail. I can't even tell you how much. I think it's because, you know, I grew up um, the daughter of a sailor. So I would always, like, be waiting for my dad's letters from sea. Mm. But I get a surge of anger if I go to check the mail and I don't have any mail. The people help run around Sue stay <laughs> happy and calm. Yeah. Write her. Write me. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining today. I just This is such a pleasure. It was a pleasure for me, too. Thank and, you. And um, best of luck with the continuation and completion of your studies. Thank you. And, you know, I can't wait to see what the practice that you create looks like. Teas and tinctures and all. Thank you. And badass chess games. Thank you. And I would like to ask the people of the internet, this is a little oxymoronic, but get offline and go out in the world. (laughs) (laughs) I think if we all got out in the world one more time a month, it would be a much funner place. Absolutely. Does this include, like, taking a walk? Yeah. Going around the corner, mm-hmm. something like that. Definitely. I bartend a couple of days a week, and it's shocking how t- many times I look across the bar and everyone's on their phone. Okay. Albert and um, the boys, they have this thing that they do when they have their boy night. They all set their phone in a stack. Yep. And, and the first person to reach over and grab it has to buy the round. Yep. I think that's brilliant. Yeah, I think that's excellent. Yeah, I heard that. I started a couple, like, within the last few years, somewhere out in, like, San Francisco, they started doing it. Ah. And it caught on. I think it's brilliant. Yeah, I, I think that... The world needs more yeah. Ooh. face-to-face contact. And compromise is the way to go. So if you are out walking around, you can certainly be listening to a podcast. Exactly, yes. <laughs> it's it's, it's right? about moving your eyes and moving through space, but your ears. Yes. You know, If you're it's walking about... in heavy traffic, just have one ear <laughs> Yeah, it's about inclusion. That's the thing. I'm not saying exclude. I'm just saying bring it together. Bring it together. Bring it together, people. Curate your moment. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're welcome. There you have it, folks, my interview with the one and only Miss Runaround Sue. I know she said she's looking forward to being off the radar for a while, but I have a feeling you're going to be seeing a lot of her uh, coming up in some really beautiful, supportive ways for everyone's well-being. 
In the meantime, definitely go check out SugarShackBurlesque.com. And if you're lucky, you may well catch Sue at her weekly party every Wednesday at the Delancey in Lower Manhattan, uh, or I should say Lower East Side, at the Delancey, which is 168 Delancey Street. Shaken and Sir is the name of the party. It's New York City's best kept secret, and it is a damn good time. Thanks so much for tuning in, guys, and I look forward to bringing you a brand new episode episode <laughs> episode this time next week. Be good to yourselves. Take care, and I'll talk to you soon. Lots of love, guys. Bye. Want some lunch for your ears? Lunch with legs.